Chapter Nine of *The Last of the Plainsmen* by Zane Grey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. *The Last of the Plainsmen* by Zane Grey. Chapter Nine. The Land of the Muskox. A far cry it was from bright June at Port Chippewyan to dim October on Great Slave Lake. Two long laborious months, Ray and Jones threaded the crooked shores of the great inland sea to halt at the extreme northern end, where a plunging outlet formed the source of a river. Here they found a stone chimney and fireplace standing among the darkened, decayed ruins of a cabin. "'We mustn't lose no time,' said Ray. "'I feel the winter and the wind, and see how dark the days are getting on us.' "'I'm hunting musk oxen,' replied Jones. "'Man, we're facing the northern night. We're in the land of the midnight sun. Soon we'll be shut in for seven months, the cabin we want, wood and meat.' A forest of stunted spruce trees edged on the lake, and soon its dreary solitudes rang to the strokes of axes. The trees were small and uniform in size. Black stumps protruded here and there from the ground, showing work of the steel in time gone by. Jones observed that the living trees were no larger in diameter than the stumps, and questioned Rhea in regard to the difference in age. "'Cut twenty-five, maybe fifty years ago,' said the trapper. "'But the living trees are no bigger.' Trees and things don't grow fast in Northland. They erected a fifteen-foot cabin around stone chimney, roofed it with poles and branches of spruce and a layer of sand. In digging near the fireplace, Jones unearthed the rusty file and the head of a whiskey keg, upon which was a sunken word in unintelligible letters. "'We've found a place,' said Rhea. "'Franklin built a camp in here in 1819, and in 1833 Captain Back wintered here, when he was in search of Captain Ross of the vessel Fury. It was those exploring parties that cut the trees. I seen the Indian sign out there made last winter, I reckon, but Indian never cut down no trees. The hunters completed the cabin, piled cords of firewood outside, stowed away the kegs of dried fish and fruits, the sacks of flour, boxes of crackers, canned meats and vegetables, sugar, salt, coffee, tobacco, all the cargo, then took the boat apart and carried it up the bank, which labor took them less than a week. Jones found sleeping in the cabin, despite the fire, uncomfortably cold, because of the white chinks between the logs. It was hardly better than sleeping under the swaying spruces. When he essayed to stop up the cracks, a task by no means easy considering the lack of material, Ray laughed his short ho-ho, and stopped him with the word, wait. Every morning the green ice extended further out into the lake. The sun paled dim and dimmer. The nights grew colder. On October 8th, the thermometer registered several degrees below zero. It fell a little more the next night and continued to fall. Oh, ho, cried Ray. She struck the toboggan, and presently she'll commence to slide. Come on, Buff, we've work to do. He caught up a bucket made for their hole in the ice. Rebroke a six-inch layer, the freeze of a few hours, and filling his bucket returned to the cabin. Jones had no inkling of the trapper's intention, and wonderingly he soused his bucket full of water and followed. By the time he had reached the cabin, a matter of some thirty or forty good paces, the water no longer splashed from his bail, for a thin film of ice prevented. Rhea stood fifteen feet from the cabin, his back to the wind, and through the water. Some of it froze in the air, most of it froze on the logs. The simple plan of the trapper to encase the cabin with ice was easily divined. All day the men worked, ceasing only when the cabin resembled a glistening mound. 
It had not a sharp corner nor a crevice. Inside it was warm and snug, and as light as when the chinks were open. A slight moderation of the weather brought the snow, such snow, a blinding white flutter of great flakes as large as feathers. All day they rustled softly. All night they swirled, sweeping, sweeping, seeping, brushing against the cabin. Ho, ho, roared Ray. Tis good. Let her snow, and the reindeer will migrate. We'll have fresh meat. The sun shone again, but not brightly. A nipping wind cut down out of the frigid north and crusted the snow. The third night following the storm, when the hunters lay snug under their blankets, a commotion outside aroused them. Indians, said Ray, come north for reindeer. Half the night, shouting and yelling, barking of dogs, hauling of sleds and cracking of dried-skinned teepees, murdered sleep for those in the cabin. In the morning the level plain and edge of the forest held the Indian village. Caribou hides, strung on forked poles, constituted tent-like habitations, and no distinguishable doors. Fire smoked in holes in the snow. Not till late in the day did any life manifest itself round the trepees, and then a group of children, poorly clad in ragged pieces of blankets, skins, gaped at Jones. He saw their pinched brown faces, staring hungry eyes, naked legs and throats, and noted particularly their dwarfish size. When he spoke they fled precipitously a little way, then turned. He called again, and all ran except one small lad. Jones went into the cabin and came out with a handful of sugar and square lumps. Yellowknife, Indians, said Ray. A starved tribe. We're in for it. Jones made motions to the lad, but he remained still, as if transfixed, and his black eyes stared wonderingly. Muller White man good, said Ray. The lad came out of his trance and looked back at his companions, who edged nearer. Jones ate a lump of sugar, then handed one to the little Indian. He took it gingerly, put it in his mouth, and immediately jumped up and down. Hopi-shimpi-poli! Hopi-shimpi-poli! He shouted to his brothers and sisters. They came on the run. Think he means sweet salt, interpreted Ray. Of course, these beggars never tasted sugar. A band of youngsters trooped around Jones, and after tasting the white lumps, shrieked in such delight that the braves and squaws shuffled out of the trepees. In all his days, Jones had never seen such miserable Indians. Dirty blankets hid all their person except straggling black hair, hungry, wolfish eyes, and moccasins' feet. They crowded into the path before the cabin door and mumbled and stared and waited. No dignity, no brightness, no suggestion of friendliness marked this peculiar attitude. "'Starved!' exclaimed Ray. "'They've come to the lake to invoke the great spirit to send the reindeer. Buff, whatever you do, don't feed them. If you do, we'll have them on our hands all winter. It's cruel, but, man, we're in the north.' Notwithstanding the practical trapper's admonitions, Jones could not resist the pleading of the children. He could not stand by and see them starve. After ascertaining there was absolutely nothing to eat in the teepees, he invited the little ones into the cabin and made a great pot of soup, into which he dropped compressed biscuits. The savage children were like wildcats. Jones had to call Rhea to assist him in keeping the famished little aborigines from tearing each other to pieces. When finally they were all fed, they had to be driven out of the cabin. "'That's new to me,' said Jones. "'Poor little beggars!' Ray doubtfully shook his shaggy head. 
Next day, Jones traded with the Yellowknives. He had a good supply of baubles besides blankets, gloves, and boxes of canned goods, which he had brought for such trading. He secured a dozen of the large-boned white and black Indian dogs, huskies. Ray called him two long sleds with harnesses and several pairs of snowshoes. This trade made Jones rub his hands in satisfaction, for during all the long journey north he had failed to barter for such cardinal necessities to the success of his venture. "'Better have doled out the grub to them in rations,' grumbled Ray. Twenty-four hours sufficed to show Jones the wisdom of the trapper's words, for in just that time the crazed, ignorant savages had gutted the generous store of food which should have lasted them for weeks. The next day they were begging at the cabin door. Ray cursed and threatened them with his fist, but they returned again and again. Days passed, all the time in light and dark. The Indians filled the air with dismal chant and doleful incarnations to the great spirit, and a tum-tum-tum of the tom-toms, a specific feature of their wild prayer for food. But the white monotony of the rolling land and the level lake remained unbroken. The reindeer did not come. The days became shorter, dimmer, darker. The mercury kept on the slide. Forty degrees below zero did not trouble the Indians. They stamped till they dropped, then sang till their voices vanished and beat the tom-toms everlastingly. Jones fed the children once each day, against the trapper's advice. One day, while Ray was absent, a dozen braves succeeded in forcing an entrance, and clamored so fiercely and threatened so desperately that Jones was on the point of giving them food when the door opened to admit Rhea. With a glance he saw the situation. He dropped the bucket he carried, threw the door wide open, and commenced action. Because of his great bulk he seemed slow, but every blow of his sledgehammer fist knocked a brave against the wall or through the door into the snow. When he could reach two savages at once, by way of diversion, he swung their heads together with a crack. They dropped like sacks of corn, pitching them out into the snow. In two minutes the cabin was clear. He banged a door and slipped the bar in place. Buff, I'm going to get mad at these thieving redskins some day, he said gruffly. The expanse of his chest heaved slightly, like the slow swell of a calm ocean but there was no other indication of unusual exertion. Jones laughed and again gave thanks for the comradeship of this strange man. Shortly afterward he went out for wood and, as usual, scanned the expanse of the lake. The sun shone mistier and waner, and frost feathers floated in the air. Sky and sun and plain and lake, all were gray. Jones fancied he saw a distant moving mass of darker shade than the gray background. He called the trapper. Caribou, said Ray instantly, the vanguard of the migration. Hear the Indians? Hear their cry? Aton, aton. They mean reindeer. The idiots have scared the herd with their infernal racket, and no meat will they get. The caribou will keep to the ice, and man or Indian can't stalk them there. For a few moments his companion surveyed the lake and shore with a plainsman's eye, then dashed within to reappear with a Winchester in each hand. Through the crowd of bewailing, bemoaning Indians he sped, to the low, dying bank. The hard crust of snow upheld him. The gray cloud was a thousand yards out upon the lake, and moving southeast. If the caribou did not swerve from this course, they would pass close to a projecting point of land, a half-mile up the lake. So, keeping a wary eye upon them, the hunter ran swiftly. He had not hunted antelope and buffalo on the plains all his life without learning how to approach moving game. As long as the caribou were in action, they could not tell whether he moved or was motionless. 
In order to tell if an object was inanimate or not, they must stop to see, of which fact the keen hunter took advantage. Suddenly he saw the gray mass slow down and bunch up. He stopped running, to stand like a stump. When the reindeer moved again, he moved, and when they slackened again, he stopped and became motionless. As they kept to their course, he worked gradually closer and closer. Soon he distinguished gray, bobbing heads. When the leader showed signs of halting in his slow trot, the hunter again became a statue. He saw they were easy to deceive and daringly confident of success. He encroached on the ice and closed up the gap till not more than two hundred yards separated him from the gray, bobbing, antlered mass. Jones dropped to one knee. A moment only his eyes lingered admiringly on the wild and beautiful spectacle. Then he swept one of the rifles to a level. Old habit made the little beaded sight cover first the stately leader. Bang! The gray monarch leaped. Straight forward, four hoofs up, entered the head back, to fall dead with a crash. Then, for a few moments, the Winchester spat a deadly stream of fire, and when emptied was thrown down for the other gun, which, in the steady, sure hands of the hunter, belched death to the caribou. The herd rushed on, leaving the white surface of the lake gray with a struggling, kicking, bellowing heap. When Jones reached the caribou, he saw several young ones trying to rise on crippled legs. With his knife he killed these, not without some hazard to himself. Most of the fallen ones were already dead, and the others soon lay still. Beautiful gray creatures, they were almost white, with wide-reaching symmetrical horns. A medley of yells arose from the shore, and Ray appeared running with two sleds, with the whole tribe of yellow knives pouring out of the forest behind him. Buff, you're just what old Jim said you was, thundered Ray, as he surveyed the gray pile. Here's winter meat and I'd have not given a biscuit for all the meat I thought you'd get. Thirty shots in less than thirty seconds, said Jones, and I'll bet every ball I sent touched hair. How many reindeer? Twenty. Twenty. Buff, or I'll forget how to count. I guess maybe you can't handle them shooting arms. Oh, here comes the howling redskins. Ray whipped out his bowie knife and began disemboweling the reindeer. He had not proceeded far in his task when the crazed savages were around him. Everyone carried a basket or receptacle which he swung aloft, and they sang, prayed, rejoiced on their knees. Jones turned away from the sickening scenes that convinced him these savages were little better than cannibals. Ray cursed them and tumbled them over, and threatened them with the big bowie. An altercation ensued, heated on his side, frenzied on theirs. Thinking some treachery might befall his comrades, Jones ran into the thick of the group. Share with him, Ray, share with him. Whereupon the giant hauled out ten smoking carcasses. Bursting into a babble of savage glee and tumbling over one another, the Indians pulled the caribou to the shore. Thieving fools, growled Ray, wiping the sweat from his brow. Said they'd prevailed on the great spirit to send the reindeer. Why, they'd never smelled warm meat but for you. Now, Buff, They'll gorge every hair, hide and hoof, of their share in less than a week. That's the last we'd do for the damned cannibals. Didn't you see em eatin' of the raw innards? Yeah. I'm calculating we'll see no more reindeer. It's late in the migration. The big herd is driven southward. But we're lucky, thanks to your prairie training. Come on now with the sleds, or we'll have a pack of wolves to fight. By loading three reindeer on each sled, the hunters were not long in transporting them to the cabin. Buff, there ain't much doubt about them keepin' nice and cool, said Ray. They'll freeze, and we can skin them when we want. 
That night the starved wolf-dogs gorged themselves till they could not rise from the snow. Likewise the yellow knives feasted. How long the ten reindeer might have served the wasteful tribe, Ray and Jones never found out. Next day two Indians arrived with dog-trains, and their advent was hailed with another feast and a powwow that lasted into the night. "'Guess we're going to get rid of our blasted hungry neighbors,' said Ray, coming in next morning with the water-pail. "'And I'll be darned, Buff, if I don't believe them crazy heathen have been told about you.' "'Them Indians was messengers. Grab your gun, and we'll walk over and see.' The old knives were breaking camp, and the hunters were at once conscious of the difference in their bearing. Ray addressed several braves, but got no reply. He laid his broad hand on the old wrinkled chief, who repulsed him, and turned his back. With a growl, the trapper spun the Indian around, and spoke as many words of the language as he knew. He got a cold response, which ended in the ragged old chief starting up, stretching a long, dark arm northward, and his eyes fixed in fanatical subjection, and shouted, Naza! 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 Heathen! Ray shook his gun in the faces of the messengers. It'll go bad with you to come nazzin' any longer on our trail. Come, Buff, clear out before I get mad. When they were once more in the cabin, Ray told Jones that the messengers had been sent to warn the Yellow Knives not to aid the white hunters in any way. That night the dogs were kept inside, and the men took turns in watching. Morning showed a broad trail southward, and with the going of the Yellow Knives the mercury dropped to fifty, and the long twilight winter night fell. So, with this agreeable riddance and plenty of meat and fuel to cheer them, the hunters sat down in their snug cabin to wait many months for daylight. Those few intervals when the wind did not blow were the only times Ray and Jones got out of doors. To the plainsman, new to the north, the dim gray world about him was of exceeding interest. Out of the twilight shone a wan, round, lusterless ring that Ray said was the sun. Silence and desolation were heart-numbing. "'Where are the wolves?' asked Jones of Ray. "'Wolves can't live on snow. They're further south after caribou, or further north after muskox.' In those few still intervals Jones remained out as long as he dared. With the mercury sinking to sixty degrees, he turned from the wonder of the unreal remote sun to the marvel of the north, aurora borealis, ever-present, ever-changing, ever-beautiful, and he gazed in rapt attention. "'Polar lights,' said Ray as if he were speaking of biscuits. "'You'll freeze. It's getting cold.' Cold it became, to the matter of seventy degrees. Frost covered the walls of the cabin and the roof, except for over the fire. The reindeer were harder than iron. A knife or an axe, a steel trap burned as if it had been heated in fire, and stuck to the hand. The hunters experienced trouble in breathing. The air hurt their lungs. The month dragged. Ray grew more silent day by day, and as he sat before the fire his wide shoulders sagged lower and lower. Jones, unaccustomed to the waiting, the restraint, the barrier of the north, worked on guns, sleds, harnesses, till he felt he would go mad. Then to save his mind he constructed a windmill of caribou hides and pondered over it. Trying to invent, to put into practical use an idea he had once conceived, Hour after hour he laid under his blankets, unable to sleep, and listened to the north wind. Sometimes Ray mumbled in his slumbers. Once his giant form started up, and he muttered a woman's name. Shadows from the fire flickered on the walls, visionary. Spectral shadows, cold and gray, fitting the north. 
At such times he longed with all the power of his soul to be among those scenes far southward, which he called home. For days Ray never spoke a word, only gazed into the fire, ate, and slept. Jones, drifting far from his real self, feared the strange mood of the trapper and sought to break it, but without avail. More and more he reproached himself, and singularly on the one fact that, as he did not smoke himself, he had brought only a small store of tobacco. Ray, inordinate and inveterate smoker, had puffed away all the weed in clouds of white, then had relapsed into gloom. End of chapter 9